Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Good afternoon. Beth AQ here with you on the Glass House. Just quickly wiping away my tears. Mel Cranenberg. What a woman. What a show. What a legacy. That was her final edition of Backstory and wasn't it a special one? In-studio guests are back. As always, you can listen back to any interviews of hers that you missed via the Triple R website or podcast or however you like to treat yourself. As a listener, first and foremost uh, to Triple R and to Mel's show, can I just say, Mel, it has been a special joy listening to your show as I come into the station each week. Thank you for your considered uh, insightful and incisive questions And thank you for consistently making space for nuanced and thought-provoking discussions. You will be missed. I begin today, like each and every week, by acknowledging that I'm coming to you from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and extend that to you if you're an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listening today. It always was and always will be. Aboriginal land. I also want to flag that today's interview will likely deal with themes of colonial violence, so if that's not something you're up for today, that is a okay. I am feeling very bittersweet today, uh, as today today is my last show. Um, I'm sure you can guess all my reasons for having to hang up the headphones. It's a, a tale as old as time. It's kind of quite tough juggling this show alongside work and other life commitments, so that's why I've decided to step down. Uh, it was a really difficult decision to make as I absolutely adore this show and, and getting the privilege of coming in here each week and keeping you company. Uh, but it's something that I sat with for a long time and I know it's right for me and I'm very excited to see what's next for this hour of the day on Triple R. If you will indulge me for a moment, I started out on the front desk at Triple R in 2014 and have since done a few roles here, including uh, working on All the Best and producing The Arts Diary. And this show, The Glass House, uh, I've been doing for the last four years. And I've honestly loved every single moment on air with you. It is such a privilege to interview people that I have, um, and it's something that I'll always cherish. And today is absolutely no different. I'm so thrilled uh, to be joined in just a little bit by Munanjali and South Sea Islander woman Chelsea Watergo to speak about her highly acclaimed book, Another Day in the Colony. It examines the ongoing and daily racism faced by First Nations people in so-called Australia. It's an incredibly thought-provoking collection and I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity <clears throat> to speak with her um, someone that's not only a published author but a widely respected academic. This book is out through University of Queensland Press. Another Day in the Colony is a book of essays that lays bare the ongoing and the ongoing racial violence experienced by First Nations people. 
Author Chelsea Watergo draws on her own experiences and her observations of the operations of the colony to stand her ground against colonialism in academia, in court and in the media. Throughout this collection, we witness how the unrelenting nature of colonial violence takes a toll on relationships, on career and on the body. This book was published in November last year um, and it went to reprint in the very first day that it was due out on publication day and has since been shortlisted for numerous awards. So it's a great privilege uh, to be joined by author, academic, Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, Chelsea Watergo. Chelsea, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you for having me on your last show. It is a great privilege for me. So um, thank you. Um, Chelsea, this collection is part personal, part academic, part cultural observation, but I'd love to start with your story. You grew up uh, in the 1980s in uh, the southern suburbs of Brisbane. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the home you grew up in and, and your childhood? Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, grew up the youngest of four kids, and, uh, you know, the ch- uh, children of a, of a black father and a white mother. Uh, I think we'd described as working poor, um, you know, dad was a truck driver, mum worked on the switch, um, and we lived very out of suburbs, you know, four lanes of traffic, the train lines and a foundry, um, and um, very much, you know, on the border of all kinds of things, at the margins of all kinds of things. But um, growing up, I, I didn't have a sense of that marginalisation. Um, the imagining of ourselves in our home was not one of, um, of being a problem, of of any of those things having that that kind of meaning attached to it as though it was a deficiency or lack. Mm. Um, so we were raised with a very strong sense of um, pride in who we are and where we come from um, and there was no sort of, um, you know, aspirations for social mobility and to, you know, um, to get on up or get on out of our circumstances. And, um, yeah, I think I had a very fortunate upbringing in terms of, the, the ideologies that shaped our upbringing um, and just the everydayness of it um, because growing up and becoming an adult and having these encounters with in this place, um, I think it was the armour that I needed to protect me from the violence of this place. Mm. Um, and I guess in then telling the story, I wanted to show that to people who may not have known that uh, but who have experienced that because uh, a lot of mob have shared the same experience of, of you know, knowing who the fuck we are and mm. never being phased by how the world imagines us. Um, but I just think in this time of 20 years of closing the gap of black lack, um, we have a generation of, of, of black fellas that don't know any other way of imagining ourselves out of deficiency. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I'd love to talk. Kind of yeah, I'd love to talk a bit about the title of the book. You know, another day in the colony. It's uh, it's also a hashtag on Twitter. It really, I suppose, speaks to this idea of just the relentless nature of encountering uh, the colony and those day to day reactions that stemmed outside of the home. That you know, the, the external kind of encroaching on the internal. Can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, the hashtag and kind of yeah, where that came from. Yeah, look, at um, the hashtag came out of Blackfella Twitter um, as a hashtag. Um, and uh, some years ago, um, I remember having a conversation with um, sister Dr Melinda Mann who, um, who were talking about, you know, it's just another day in the colony. And um, it's just found life um, and meaning for a lot of Blackfellas um, to 
in a very simple and straightforward way give voice to, to the everydayness of colonial violence um, uh, in the mundane to the the most you know violent um, encounters but as a way to kind of for me what I think it serves for black fellas is a way to externalize rather than internalize um, colonial violence mm. and oftentimes you know victims of all forms of violence we tend to find a way to blame ourselves or we, we don't allow ourselves to feel the pain because we don't just we don't feel we're deserving victims um, and so there's a whole lot of internal dialogue that's really violent that goes on for us in these encounters and another day in the colony just does that of going well it's about them it's not about us mm. um, and people use it in you know for comedic relief in a sarcastic way and angry ways and so um, it, it, it finds its use in all kinds of interesting ways and I think for those on Twitter it's worth checking out the hashtag to see how blackfella Twitter gives it meaning because we all give it meanings in different kinds of ways and I think that's really cool. Mm. Yes, I highly recommend checking it out. It is, um, yeah, it's it's incredibly interesting and, uh, you know, it is uh, a small uh, window into what this book is about uh, Chelsea, you know, this book opens with a drawing that's done by your daughter. Uh, she did it on Harmony Tay. Uh, it's a picture that was depicting her culture. Can you kind of describe that picture um, and tell us about its significance? Yeah, so this drawing, it was, you know, the usual Harmony Day draw a picture of your culture. Um, and so uh, Maya brought the picture home and it's a, it was like a family portrait, I guess. Um, and we were placed outside our gunya and I had a little red frock on um, holding some boomerangs and dad was standing above the gunya with his spear. So the whole that hierarchical thing was a little bit problematic for me. Um, and then the kids were featured um, as um, animals and elements. Um, and um, that wasn't random. It, it was um, each of them featured as the, the animal and elements that they are named after in Yugambeh language in their names. Um, and, um, yeah, it was a drawing of her culture. And um, I, when I first saw it, I was a bit troubled by it. <laughs> that, you know, here we have a child who is, you know, born and raised in a strong black community, went to Murray Kindy, um, uh, has two black parents, uh, has a strong sense of, you know, a lived sense of her cultural identity, but reproduced what I would think of as this colonial imagining um, of the Aborigine. And um, because I was, the time I was teaching a course called Gendered Business in the Aboriginal Studies major, and I was using the film Jeddah. Uh, and the trailer to help students kind of deconstruct these colonial imaginings. And in the course of my teaching, I came across the Jeddah poster, the promotional poster, and lo and behold, Jeddah is in her red frock with her love interest standing over her with his spears in their natural habitat. And I'm like, this kid hasn't seen that movie, yet they know the story they're meant to tell when asked to speak of their culture. Mm. Um, but in the course of telling the story, I did have to check myself in terms of uh, my critique of that, that drawing, um, that, um, you know, when I also look at that drawing and when she has to explain how, you know, what that drawing is, she has to place herself in relation to country in order to be able to tell that or why um, she's featured as an emu and why her brother's a kangaroo mm. and why her twin brothers are, are sun and moon. And so what I realised is what I had done as a parent is is has had given her things much like my father had given me 
to hold her in place, literally, mm. and to speak from place. And so um, I had to, you know, I had to check myself on how I interpreted it as well. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, I suppose it's a tricky thing, right? Because the, uh, as you said, the colonial imagining or the the narratives that we've been told about um, the Aboriginal, uh, you know, we've seen it right throughout kind of colonial history, capital H history in many ways. You know, I'd love to spend a little time hearing more of your thoughts on that kind of knowledge production in the colony. You know, I know that you're a very successful um, academic and scholar. Can you tell me a bit about, I suppose, coming to academia? Was that something that you'd planned for? Absolutely not. Um, In fact, my dad roused me when I said I was going to university (laughs) at 17. Um, I was supposed to go full time at Coles as a checkout chick because that's where I was working part time. Um, And so there was, um, you know, we had pride in being workers and dad was a little bit wild that I was going to university and not going to do real work, um, bless. Um, and uh, so no, no aspirations even to go to university um, necessarily. It just so happened that I found a course that would enable me to work with mob and that's literally um, how I came to uni. It wasn't because I wanted a degree. Mm. Um, it was the kind of work I wanted to, to do. And um, it just so happened I did like this, it was like a, one of those boutique Indigenous health courses where there's just like these small black cohorts that come through that they had at some, once upon a time we used to have, now we don't. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so I just wanted to be a community worker. Mm. Um, and uh, I, um, I even during the PhD, I didn't do it to be an academic. I was wanting to start a family and and still have like have the opportunity to think about stuff while I was having babies. So I had three during the four year PhD process, um, <laughs> as you do. Dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I after that I did playgroup and just did community work. Um, I didn't have a desire to be, work in the academy necessarily, but I became increasingly frustrated with the stories that were being told of us. Um, and the knowledge being produced about us mm. and that it wasn't enough to work in community and talk about strength-based approach and kind of resist stereotypes, that there was this um, there was this factory producing this knowledge much like the foundry I lived across the road from. And um, I didn't want to, you know, advance my way off the foundry floor like Dad did when he got to drive the cranes. Mm. Um, I wanted to tear it down. Um, I wanted to call it for what it is and... Um, reveal its violence and, and challenge the authority of which it claims and the violence that it visits upon us all the time. Um, and it's a funny thing, like it's a, it's a really weird position, I think, um, you know, to occupy a position of in a professorial title and then at the same time have this goal. And it's why on the one hand there's a measure of success in terms of a title but there's still a marginalisation in terms of the type of scholarship and a surveillance and regulation and um, stuff that goes on because the work that I'm driven to do is not to uphold this this factory mm. necessarily. Um, it's to kind of rate it for the things that we need um, for, for our own goals really. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, in my mind what you're doing is this really fantastic thing of, of complicating the kind of hierarchy of, of knowledge and, you know, you're in a long line of amazing black um, thinkers and creators who have done that. I'm interested, how do you kind of negotiate that tension when you are working kind of within and outside places like a university? Yeah, look, it's it's really hard and I'm learning, by you know, through making mistakes um, and, and taking the learnings from them. Like I, I'm not sure that this is the best place for my labour. 
Like I don't know that just at this moment, but I'm I'm exploring that and and seeing whether the, you know what I can do. Um, I have other things that I do outside of the academy that are really important to me, like a community organisation in my own community of Anala and Alawangra. Um, I've established a, a institute for collaborative race research to do some intellectual work that serves very particular political purposes. Um, that gives them us freedom to play a bit more um, in ways that these institutions don't. So I'm finding different ways to do the kind of work that I enjoy doing um, and also the kind of decision-making processes about what you agree to do and what you agree to be a part of, um, while also navigating the violence that comes with not being compliant and holding the system, even from other black academics. Um, you know, some people really love this hierarchical arrangement when they climb to the top of it and uh, you can be seen as being um, disloyal by not just, you know, going along with it and enjoying the spoils of it all. Um, and, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm still navigating that every day um, and having to make those decisions. And I think that even, um, you know, um, getting to a certain position, um, it, it really just makes a bigger target on your back. Um, so this decision making is becomes more important. Um, I think I, I the other thing I, sh I, I guess I um, have been thinking about is even like the role of the public intellectual um, and the space of social media and the kind of balancing the ego that that's in that space. Mm. Um, and so I, I yeah I'm still not I'm I find that challenging as well. I, I took it to like two months off social media at the start of the year um, just to kind of get a bit like grounded in what the what work is actually important and what I'm doing and 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 why and how do we use social media and for what purposes and stuff and and our, in terms of checking ourselves as well um, so I found that was really useful to be constantly reflecting on that constantly working out and holding ourselves accountable um, to the values that we espouse. Mm. It's such a interesting and complicated space because in a way social media is hierarchical, you know, it has numbers of followers, it is very quantifiable what, you know, perhaps success in quotation marks looks like. But at the same time, obviously, you know, some of these ideas for the book and hashtag another day in the colony, there's also so much uh you know, amazing use to these platforms because it is bringing, as you said, Blackfella Twitter together to be able to have these conversations within your community. Yeah, how do you how do you navigate that yeah. kind of? Um, well, yeah, so taking the time out was really good because I got to reflect on what I what was what I missed, what I valued about the platforms that I used, um, and I'm I missed Blackfella Twitter. I missed the community that I get to think out loud with about the world, um, and so I missed it as a thinking space. Um, and um, it's it's helped me, I guess, um, coming back to think about I, I don't have to um, participate in every single conversation that's being had. Um, no, no one person has to be the knower of all things. Um, like, and you can make mistakes and and own them, and mm. you know. Um, but also that um, people also don't get to own you. And what I found was that people had access to me 24 hours a day and a sense of entitlement to my time. And that was one of the challenges I had with social media was that it, not like the emails where you can kind of go, I'm not going to touch emails during these hours. When you have your phone, it's it's dinging all the time. And I felt a, um, a big pressure, I guess, to always be responsive to people's demands from me um, because the book had done stuff for them and they wanted to share and or wanted to come for you, whatever, you know, like 
all the different kinds of attention that, that comes your way. And so um, for me, it was also good about putting in place my own boundaries around, well, I'm accountable first and foremost to my five kids because mm-hmm. they need me. Um, and if I can do other stuff, I can do it, but I, I don't have to. Um, um, yeah, people are not entitled to my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, when um, when people think that you've got like a platform or something, that then um, you're meant to be of service. And, yeah, I had to kind of make some sense of some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very tricky. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. If you have joined us, just joined us, we are talking with Chelsea Watergo all about her uh, collection of essays, Another Day in the Colony. Chelsea, we've kind of spoken a bit about, I suppose, dispossession of story through the academy. Something else that you really explore in your book is um, dispossession of story through the white literary canon that we have. You know, story storytelling and kind of literature is something that I've looked at a lot on this show um, and it, you know, it has been a huge site of violence for um, the way that Aboriginal people have been depicted by colonisers um, for since colonisation. You really unpack this uh, in one of your chapters called "The Unpublishable Story." Can you, I suppose, speak a little bit to to that chapter? Yeah. So the unpublishable story was, um, spoiler alert, um, was the um, article that the Australian Feminist Law Journal refused to publish on the grounds that it posed a risk of defamation because the reader would likely draw a conclusion that perhaps the author was racist. So I I was a review of a book, um, Saltwater by Cathy McLennan, who's now a magistrate in North Queensland, um, who wrote about a two-year stint in Townsville at the Aboriginal Legal Service. And um, uh, it was was a really long, drawn-out, violent process in terms of them coming to that decision of not refusing to publish it on on legal grounds. Um, But this was part of a special issue that was being edited by Alison Whitaker and Dr Nicole Watson, um, two staunch black women, Um, and it was a special issue on Indigenous women's writing and race in the academy and, you know, so if there was going to be a place for this to get published, it would be in this special issue. Um, But I got to do an opinion piece instead about the saga in that special issue um, because we have opinions, never thoughts, and um, uh, but what they also did is they added a, a, a contribution from a white male uh, legal expert who explained defamation laws in this country to justify my omission from the journal. Like a white man got a piece um, to explain why I didn't. Like, ah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a long and complicated story. But it's a, it's um, it's it's just so revealing. This is. This is like this is the time we're in, like, um, uh, and it hasn't changed. Um, they're just masking the ways in which they're visiting racial violence and uh, sustaining the right to reproduce racialized knowledges, and and everyone's a party to it. Um, so yeah, it was um, yeah, it was an interesting journey of a few years going back and forth. Um, and one of the cool parts about it was in terms of um, Nicole and Alison, what they did is um, they gave me the front cover of the journal um, and put my picture on it. And because one of the things they told me when they said they wouldn't publish it, they said perhaps I should try and publish it in another country um, whose defamation laws aren't so you know um, tight as, as, as it is here. 
And so I got a shirt done up that said, did you, did you forget whose land you're on? And had a portrait picture on the front of the journal, special issue. Um, so I just love the way in which, despite all the attempts to silence us, black brothers still speak back in all kinds of funny um, and interesting ways, like despite their best efforts. Mm. And so it was with much joy to, to be able to get this um, article legal by UQP, who also was the publisher for Saltwater, Kathy McLennan. Um, and... Yeah, so I loved, I love that, um, and I think this is the exciting thing that no matter what comes our way, we can find ways to still um, insist on our right to be here, to still tell our stories. Um, and I'm not saying we have to be resilient, um, but we're clever. Like our mob have always had to work out how to survive in this place, despite um, um, the, the violent attempts to, to do away with our existence. And and I, I just, yeah. Um, I'm excited by how the way in which black fellows are strategizing um, uh, how to be in this place dis- despite all that comes our way. Mm. Yeah, there's a line in your book uh, where you say, kind of towards the end, where it says survival for blackfellas in the colony of the kind of life worth living uh, is a matter of strategy. Um, and, yeah, it's can you can you speak to that idea of what that strategy is for you? Um, yeah, well, look, because I grew up in at a time where um, raised by a father who was born when there was it wasn't illegal to discriminate against people on right on the grounds of race. I mean, we have laws now, but they're still useless. But um, he lived in a different time, and he had a different strategy during his time, in, in which he, he had to do in order to survive. And so he was of the turn the other cheek rise above kind of um, strategy of dealing with racism. And I and I know that as a black man who's, you know, as Huggins says, cosmetically apparent, um, uh, at that time uh, his experience of this place is different to mine. So, of course, he had to have a different strategy to what I had in this time um, as someone who's light-skinned, as a woman, um, all those things. And so um, race is constantly evolving and moulding and, and finding new ways. Um, and, and as blackfellas, we have to like, keep sharing our strategies and new ways in which we operate around this thing because it's not going anywhere. Mm. And I guess, I mean, I, that's why Fuck Hope is, is a strategy in and of itself, of knowing that it's not going anywhere. Um, so what are we going to do? Um, and draw on our own strength, our own power, our own resources to just do what we want to do on our terms because I just see so much labour of blackfellas, whether it's creative or intellectual, even political um, and legal, is all framed around appealing to the very people whose existence is based on our non-existence. Mm. And that gets tiring but it's also betraying um, and so many blackfellas have been brutalised by the betrayal of hope in all things white. Um, and so it's kind of just, you know, um, a strategy is returning to remembering who we are, where we come from, um, and learning from each other and the people that have gone before us about how to live in this place. Because, mm. um, um, you know, every day in the colony is hard. And there is a part uh, towards the end where you kind of point to uh, some of the amazing kind of black activists, workers, Alison Whitaker. Um, uh, Dr. Lila Watson, uh, that are doing this work and, you know, that I think give you uh, 
it seems like the pride in, and, the, and the community spirit to be able to kind of keep uh, keep moving in what is, yeah, as you said, this like unrelenting violence. Something I did want to ask you about, um, you mentioned before you are a parent. Um, I'm interested in, I suppose, be, being a black mum and, and how that how you kind of negotiate what truths to tell and when to tell them when you are experiencing, um, yeah, this ongoing violence. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of truth telling, um, and I had that, I had that in my home. Like there was a critical race consciousness, there was a truth telling about the reality of the world, um, but there was a strategy of how to respond to it. So you know, Dad's thing was be ten times better and work harder and all that kind of stuff. Um, now for me, it's like no, nah, fuck them. Um, uh, I've kind of adapted that strategy, and um, and certainly be, being very honest. Um, with my kids, but allowing them to come to their own learnings as well. Um, and I, you know, I just even reflected last night about um, my eldest was called the N word at school when he was 11. And so on the drive home, I was just, and because the school had reported, and on, on drive home, I said like, so, so how would you feel? Um, and and he was like, well, maybe when I was younger, it would have hurt me, but now I'm older, I'm kind of used to it. Um, and this was at 11. Um, and so our kids know the truth of this world. They experience it. Mm. And we do a disservice to them if we don't give them the tools for understanding what's going on there, um, that it's not about them. Um, and so, um, and I love, I've, you know, my kids are from uh, 19 through to 11-year-olds now. And, um, you know, they've got all kinds of questions about the world and I love that um, our kitchen table is a place where we get to talk honestly about who we are, about the world outside, um, and to give them um, those tools for being able to um, question the logics that they have to live in, that they know don't tell the truth about who they are um, in all kinds of ways. Um you know, I have another child who has to deal with homophobic slurs every day in the playground um, and they intellectualise it in class and talk about gender as a social construct and do all these things to try and do educative work. And I'm just like, no, fuck them, you know, like you don't have to do that. Mm. Like um, we don't have to waste our labour on that stuff. And so for me watching my kids having to go through this um, as a parent, um, I feel responsible for giving them as many uh, weapons and as many as much armour as I can so they can fight their fights um, and have the best available protection but also tools to do something about this place. Mm. Um, and, you know, if they want to slap someone, I'm here for that too. I don't care. <laughs> I do want to ask you. In defence of slapping go. people. <laughs> Before I let you go, I mean, you wrote a, an amazing piece yesterday on Indigenous X called I Will Not Be Lectured on Violence by These Women, <laughs> which, you know, this book was written, I believe, in 2020, you know, 2022, even this week, you know, we're seeing examples of what you're talking about. Like, obviously, not much has changed since you, you've written it, but, you know, you, you write in it, um, in having to deal with violence on the daily in all its forms, blackfellas have come to see that black people cannot count on white people, white laws, white civility, white society to protect us can you speak to that article and you know just these ideas that really play into what you've done in the book well what did my head in is seeing the likes of Jess Hill who's championed carceral responses to, to you know coercive control all last year using the violence that an Aboriginal woman experienced and her child and then carry on about a slap over there 
I mean, just think about, you know, that Aboriginal women are the fastest growing prison population. Um, we know that um, black women are more likely to be deemed a perpetrator than the victim of violence when police attend. Like we experience violence in the reporting of violence. Um, and there are so many, so many examples of this. And so all the carceral feminists all of last year were just brutalising um, blackfellas who were bringing the evidence to the conversation, like the evidence, not just our testimony. We didn't trauma dump. We brought the evidence around the violence of the state and the dangers of giving the state more powers to, to exercise more violence over us. And so to see all these white feminists who, who are, you know, um, indifferent to the violence that black women experience, except when they can extract it for their own purposes, carry on about a slap. Like, what are they things happening to black women in custody right now? And even the means by which black women find themselves in custody um, is violent. Like, we don't have to do anything wrong in order to find ourselves assaulted by police in custody. And yet their silence is deafening. So it just made me so wild because, you know, Sure, we don't go around slapping people all the time and we don't say that's a great thing. But I, look, I was glad he did it for a black woman. Um, and just so the whole carry on and the outrage, I was more wild about the outrage than I was about the slap. Hmm. Um, particularly given, you know, this week we've got um, the Coronal Inquiry into Miss Bernard up in Cairns um, and no one's covering it. Cairns Post is, but this is a public hearing. But where the hell is the public on this? Like, where is the outrage about what's going on in this case? Um, but no one knows her story and, and what's happened to her, not just in the process of a disappearance, but the process of investigating that disappearance and, and the violence of, of not deeming a black woman worthy enough of not just fighting or protecting, but even investigating her disappearance. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was wild yesterday. <laughs> Highly recommend. Really wild. And right now you've got, you know, um, uh, the only people that are rep reporting on this are, are, are black women who are bearing witness to this violence mm -hmm. um, and appealing for people to um, um, to care, but no one does. People don't care about black women. It's just it's just a fact. Um, but I just want to recommend the work of Amy McGuire and her presencing Substack, which is just doing such important work because Amy McGuire believes that black women are worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. um, we just need more other people to think the same. I also highly recommend uh, checking out Chelsea Watergo's a piece on Indigenous X called I Will Not Be Lectured on Violence by These Women. <laughs> Chelsea Watergo, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Chelsea Watergo there talking all about Another Day in the Colony. It is out now through the University of Queensland Press. You're on Triple R and it is nearly time for me to get on out of here. Uh, but before I do, uh, this is my last show and I do have a couple of things that I want to say, if you will indulge me. Uh, leaving this show uh, is such a bittersweet feeling, but uh, it has been an immense privilege and joy to spend time with you each week. Uh, I did start here at Triple R eight years ago uh, and started this show four years ago and it's been really wonderful to see the station grow and evolve over that time and there's honestly never felt like a more exciting time to be a part of Triple R. I feel so grateful for the opportunity to speak to some of the most amazing guests, uh, people who are storytellers, 
thinkers, makers, activists, scholars, I, I think sometimes we forget what it means to sit and listen and share space with people who have different lived experience to us. Um, so, yeah, it's been such a privilege to get to do that and it's something that I, I really cherish and I feel indebted to all the guests that I've had the honour of interviewing. Um, I've, I've honestly learnt so much um, and I hope that you might have too. Um, Big thanks to Chelsea Wadico for joining me this afternoon to speak all about her book, Another Day in the Colony. It is out through the University of Queensland Press. I do highly recommend checking it out. I do want to say a huge heartfelt thank you to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, who has been instrumental in making this show happen each week. Producers are often the silent heroes of any show um, and I just really appreciate how great she's been to work with um, and also to our program manager here at Triple R, Beck Hornsby, um, who is just a dead set legend. She's been such a source of encouragement and support over the years and I wouldn't be here uh, or I wouldn't be where I am without her. Also a big thanks to Malina Reeves, who I started with, um, started on the grid with four years ago. I felt so supported and nourished by your shows and I've learned a whole bunch too. Um, and just to the whole Triple R crew, I've, I've felt um, so supported by everyone here um, in what has been an incredibly challenging couple of years. Um, but the, the strength and, and the resilience that uh, everyone here has shown through, the, through this time has never failed to impress me and warm my heart um, and also of course to my number one fans who listen each week my mum um, and Paddy and also to you uh, dear listener for listening um, I hope that this show has been able to provide you with uh, some company um, with some warmth or at least with something to think on Triple uh, R is and always will be my favourite station in the whole world. And I look forward to continuing as a dedicated listener. Um, plus, I'm sure you'll hear me pop up on air from time to time. Um, and I'm really excited to see what is going to be in this slot at this time of the day. Um, I am, yeah, a lifelong lover of Triple R. And in case you were worried, I'm still a mega hurt for life. So hopefully I'll see you at the Community Cup this year. Thank you so much for listening this afternoon. Now and always, it has been an utter joy and delight. This has been The Glass House. My name is Beth AQ. Take care and keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 